R.J. Rushdooney, Easy Chair Number 116, February 24, 1986. I have with me this evening Mrs. Cindy Rocker. Cindy lives up the road from us here in Calaveras County, and she also uh, has a home in my hometown, Kingsburg, California. And Cindy has done some very remarkable things since her conversion. Uh, would you tell us something about your conversion and your search for a place in the life of Christ? Well, first of all, I want to thank you for having me here tonight. It's a real honor to, uh, to be here. In 1977, I accepted Christ as my Savior, and I was saved out of the world. I was not raised in a church. So as soon as I made that decision, I began to look around uh, to see what that decision was going to mean in my life. How was I going to live my life differently now that I had come to this big decision? So I determined that if I was going to call myself a Christian, that meant I was a follower of Christ. Uh, so if I was going to be a follower of Christ, then Jesus would be my role model. So I decided to look in the Gospels to see how he had spent his time while he was on this planet so that hopefully that would give me some ideas of how I should be spending my time, of how I would be able to use him as a role model. As I looked in the gospel, the gospel accounts of his life, I found that, first of all, Jesus was born into a poor family. He was also, of course, born uh, spiritually poor. And I saw him spending his time with the poor, ministering to their needs physically as well as spiritually. And... Uh, I saw him talking to those who were not poor about their responsibility to the poor. I saw him as he announced his uh, entire ministry, stand in the synagogue and say that he had been uh, sent especially by God to preach the good news to the poor. And uh, then, of course, as I looked in the Old Testament, I also saw that um, the poor are very high on God's priority list. So I determined that if, if I were going to be a follower of Christ, the poor would also have to be high on my priority list. And so I began to look around my town to see how I could serve Christ by serving the poor in my town. You know, Cindy, the wonderful thing about your conversion is this. All too many people for some generations now have seen conversion as the end, the goal of the Christian life. Whereas it's like the alphabet, it's the starting point. We're not uh, taught the alphabet to major in the alphabet all our lives. Neither are we saved to talk about John 3.16 all our lives. We're saved to serve. We are expected to have a God-centered, a Christ-centered life. So that uh, it was really the Lord who converted you, not some minister. And... Uh, as a result, uh, you've demonstrated in your life what it means to be a Christian. Tell us something of what you started to do then, as you saw this need for a ministry to the poor. Well, I do believe that um, a conversion to Christ has to be manifested in service. Otherwise, I question the conversion. Um, and so... As I began to uh, try to find poor families in Kingsburg, I began to ask my friends, where can I find a poor family in Kingsburg? And everyone I asked said the same thing. Well, gee, I don't think we have any poor families in Kingsburg. You're going to have to go look in Selma or Fresno. I'm sure they have some there. And so I asked a lot of my friends the same question and got the same answer and was getting rather frustrated when I finally asked the school principal who had been there a long time, knew all the families, and um, he gave me a list of families that he thought were poor, and I began to uh, go out and interview them. Actually, to, to back up a little bit, I decided that, you know, I couldn't just go and knock on these people's door and talk about the weather. I had to have some sort of a vehicle uh, to allow me into their lives, to allow them to trust me, uh, to allow me to ask them some questions that were very non-threatening. And so I decided to do a Christmas program. Uh, 
so that first, this was 1977, that first year um, I made myself a little questionnaire and went around, knocked on doors and asked the people, is it okay if I bring you some things for Christmas? And of course it was okay, um, so they let me in and we sat down and I began to ask some questions like, tell me the names and sizes and ages of your kids. And at, then at that point, the women um, just felt very comfortable and we began to talk like old friends. Uh, my goal was not, first of all, to bring them things at Christmas time. My goal was to build a bridge to them, to begin to establish a relationship with them. So um, uh, that first Christmas, I just brought them several things. Now, and, and I should say this, I had been in organizations before when, <clears throat> when they said they were going to take a Christmas basket. They took, you know, an old coat and a, and a turkey and a can of beans, and they thought they were doing great. And, you know, tokenism, I mean, I just, I just don't like that sort of thing. I, I think it's better to do nothing than tokenism. And so I determined that if I was going to do this thing, I was going to do it well or not at all. And so um, I made sure that I brought them the kind of package that I would hope to receive at Christmas. So a Christmas tree and food and clothes and presents and, you know, all that kind of a thing. Um, so that's, that's how I started was with the Christmas program and when the, th that program was over with I found that I had so many clothes and things left over um, that I eventually started a thrift store so that the people uh, could have a place to go to buy things at a price they could afford and feel good about themselves because they could walk into a regular store, go into a dressing room, try on clothes like everybody else and then when they go up to the register to pay they could afford the prices. Who are these people for the most part? What is their background? Well, because Kingsburg is in the San Joaquin Valley, most of the poor are Mexican-American um, farm worker families. And um, they live usually outside, just outside the city limits or sometimes within the city limits. And um, they work in the fields. There are about five months or so out of every year when there is no work, and so um, they need to find a place where they can buy the necessities for their families at prices they can afford. Uh, but they're not on relief? For the most part, no. Um, because they're illegal, um, they're really afraid to go and get the relief. Now, once in a while, somebody will be, but for the most part, the families we work with are not welfare recipients. They are really a lot poorer than any welfare recipient you could find. Now these uh, illegal aliens, predominantly Mexican, mm -hmm. are in this country and uh, a lot of people are very upset about it. Uh, do you involve yourself at all in these uh, political and social conflicts, ideas, and debates, pro and con? Well, I, I have to say that I get a lot of criticism from different people. Uh, I think the people that criticize a lot of times are just looking for an excuse not to help, not to donate food or money or clothing or whatever I'm asking for them to do. And a lot of times they say, well, what in the world are you doing helping illegals? I mean, they shouldn't be here in the first place. They should be back over on the other side because they're taking jobs away from our people and they go on and on but I say to them you know the thing that concerns me and the thing that I can tell you that's true is that there are children who are hungry and these are families they are people just like you and I and they are here whether they should be or shouldn't be is not my place to decide the fact is that Christ has called me to take care of the poor they're right here in my own backyard and that's what I need to concern myself with Yes. Uh, years ago, I read an account of two Russian writers of the last century, both of whom claimed to be Christian. Uh, both were rather defective Christians, one especially. The one was a particularly brilliant man who felt that human needs should be met. But he never found anyone who was deserving of help <laughs> because he could see a good reason why everyone he encountered should not be helped. The other person always found needs that he could meet. And his one concern was to help these people in the name of Christ. 
And I think we still have that problem. There are a great many people all around us who find good reasons not to help people. Well, if we look for reasons, we can find enough uh, to keep from helping anyone or associating with almost anyone in this world because the best of us are still sinners saved by grace. But the Lord doesn't give us a set of standards whereby we are to exclude people and their human need. We have a ministry there. I think it's interesting, uh, Cindy, that uh, you have done these things. And if I may say so, it fits in with your background because you were born in Selma, Alabama. Mm -hmm. And Southerners are often criticized for uh, their ways, but uh, actually they show more neighborliness than people in other parts of the country who pride themselves on their toleration, <laughs> which means they don't do anything for anybody <laughs> pro or con. <laughs> You've also been uh, involved uh, in other things besides the thrift shop. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, in 1980, we started a Christian preschool. Um, I have older children who at, at that time were in junior high school and grade school, and I was always asked to help in the classroom. And I noticed that when the Mexican children came in at kindergarten level, they really felt inferior. Um, soon they began to accept this label, decided that they uh, probably were dumb because they didn't know the language, they didn't feel comfortable in school. And uh, as I noticed that as they went on through school and got into junior high school, there developed a chip on their shoulder. And then by the time they were in high school, there were a lot of problems, uh, discipline problems and all kinds of things. And so um, I took a look and I thought, you know, if those kids coming into the school could come in on a positive footing, if they could come in knowing English, um, understanding classroom procedure, knowing what was expected of them, maybe even being acquainted with some of their peers, and most of all having a good self-image by knowing how much Jesus loves them. Uh, I felt that while that probably wouldn't solve the entire problem, it's probably more complex than that, still it would go a long ways to helping them um, have a more successful school career. So. In 1980, we started the Sunshine Learning Center. It is a Christian preschool open to the public. We have about 150 children, and <clears throat> we keep about 30 to 35 percent low-income, non-English speaking students. And we sprinkle them around the class as opposed to clumping them together, like some programs do. Um, so for instance, if there were 20 kids in a classroom, there would be five that would be low-income, non-English speaking children. And it's interesting to see how much they learn from the other children and vice versa. It is not a one-way street. All the students learn from each other. Um, one of the things, of course, that, that the Mexican-American kids learn quickly is English. And in our school, we teach English by immersing them in English as opposed to taking them off into another room to teach them English. And the kids learn very quickly. In fact, I've had unsolicited reports from the public school principal telling me that he is very surprised at the children that are coming into his schools because in these children's families notoriously their brothers and sisters have come very ill prepared and um, we feel that the school is very successful in order to support these kids who come uh, we find sponsors people or groups that will um, sponsor them and then the the rest of the percentage of kids that we can't find sponsors for we pick up the tab with our thrift store proceeds I also charge the families of the low-income kids a little bit, like $5 a month or something like that, because I want them to feel like they have a stake in this, like they're a part of it. I don't want them to feel like they're getting just another form of welfare. So um, we see our school as, as um, very successful. Another program that we have is our food bank. One day, the school principal called me and said, uh, listen, Cindy, we have several of our kids that have been coming to school and they haven't eaten for a few days. What can you do? And I assured him I would think of something, but maybe I could call him back in a few minutes. And so uh, that was the start of our food bank. Like I said before, there are about five months or so out of every year when there is no work for these families. And because they are not, they are not on welfare, there just is no money. And so our food bank is open during those months. 
and it's open every Saturday morning um, and all the families come and they gather around and it's a beautiful time. I don't get to be there very often but the times that I'm there I just feel very um, special to be able to be there because all the families <coughs> excuse me, get around in a big circle. There's about, we serve about 50 families every Saturday during this time and all the families get together in a big circle and they pray to thank God for the food before they go through the food bank. And um, all of our food is donated by farmers, uh, church people, individuals, groups, and uh, that also has been a very successful program. While we can't charge them money because they don't have any money, we try to find lots of ways for them to help because there's a lot of work that has to be done in the food bank. The farmers donate 100-pound sacks of flour, and so the people come in and, and put them into smaller bags. They have to sweep up the floor. There's a lot of work that goes on uh, in the business of the food bank, and so we try to involve the families who receive the food in doing this work so they feel better about receiving the things. How many uh, of the churches are involved in helping you in one way or another? Mm -hmm. Kingsburg is historically one of the most church towns in the United States. Uh, how did the churches respond to your work? Well, um, there are, I would say almost all of the churches in Kingsburg help us in one way or another. Um, some of them are only involved in the food bank. Some, are, some of them are involved in every aspect of what we do. About two, maybe two and a half years ago, um, I decided that the thing that had to happen was that we needed a Hispanic pastor to go around to the families and bring them the Word of God in their own language. At that time there was nowhere in Kingsburg where Spanish-speaking people could go and hear the Word in Spanish. And so, now you have to remember that I was saved out of the world. I was not raised in, ch in a church and so I was not aware of all the denominational reasons for why this shouldn't happen, but anyway, um, I determined that since I didn't have the money to pay a pastor full-time, and I felt that God had sent me just the right person, that it, made <clears throat> that it made perfectly good sense to go and ask all of the churches to put some money into a pot every month um, to help support this pastor, because not, not one church in Kingsburg was doing a, a Spanish work. And so uh, I went and invited all the pastors to a lunch at my house and explained the whole program and um, eventually there were seven churches uh, who agreed to be a part of the Kingsburg Hispanic Coalition and um, that group exists today. They meet once a month um, to give support to the pastor, uh, encouragement, that sort of thing and then every month each one of them puts money into the pot and we pay him a full-time salary to go out and visit the homes, to do Bible studies in the homes. He even does Bible studies out in the fields with 50 men at a time. Uh, now he has a church with church services two times on Sunday and a formal Bible study on Tuesday night. And then all the other times he works directly with our every aspect of our program uh, as well as he does a lot of home Bible studies. Tell us a little bit about this man. How you found him, <coughs> who he is, uh, his training, his interest. Right from the beginning, when I determined that I was going to serve Christ by serving the poor, my main concern was that the people know Jesus as Savior. And part of that concern was the fact that I knew there was nowhere they could go to hear the word in Spanish. And so right from the beginning, I began looking for someone, just the right person. And I tried this guy and that guy and the other guy, and it just never worked out. And being impatient as I am, I finally determined that, well, I guess that God was telling me that I was supposed to go do it. And so I decided I was going to learn whatever vocabulary I needed to go do that job when along came Carlos Delgado. And I feel like the Lord sent him just the right time because he knows how impatient I can be. And um, <clears throat> Carlos was milking cows full time. And that is a big job. Yeah. It gets you tired. You I have know. to work a lot of hours. <laughs> You've milked cows before. I said. When I was in high school. So uh, anyway. He, in his spare time, was going to the seminary at night, as well as visiting families on his own, um, telling them about his Lord. And uh, so I knew that this was just the right man, and he and I went and visited some families, and I could tell that he just really had a heart for these people, 
had a heart for the Lord, and he was just the perfect person. But this guy had four kids and a wife. And I thought, you know, our thrift store does well, but it doesn't do well enough to pay this guy a full-time <laughs> salary. So um, that's why I, I needed to go uh, find the church's support. And, you know, I really feel that the Lord was doing something, has accomplished something there that is equally as important as bringing the word to the people in their own language. And that is that he has put together all of these different denominations, which is a very unlikely thing, evidently, in this, in this Christian world of ours, um, to work together to accomplish a common goal. And not only that, but they're putting their money in it. I mean, when you're going to put money in it, that's, you know, that's sort of the bottom line for a lot of people and a lot of churches. Um, but Carlos does a beautiful job and uh, accomplishes much with these people. Incidentally, <laughs> uh, you indicated that you speak Spanish. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting how the Lord prepares us for whatever the work is that he has for us to do. And I, as I look back, I can see that he was preparing me long before I ever even knew him. And that, that is one area of Spanish. And I never wanted to take Spanish when I was in school. I thought it was a very, a very simple kind of a thing. I thought, anybody can learn Spanish. I want to learn French. That's very romantic. And so um, all during high school, I took... French, and I also, for whatever reason, took Spanish. And uh, then I found myself in a series of situations where I had to use a language. For one thing, I was sent as a foreign exchange student down to Mexico for a summer to a town that had not one person who spoke English. So I had to use the Spanish that I had learned in the classroom. And then um, I found myself in a lot of other situations in college where I was teaching classes like home economics classes to people who only spoke Spanish. Only I didn't know it until after I had signed up for the, for the duty. And uh, so once again, I had to use this language that I had sort of in my head. And um, so when it came time for me to use this language in this ministry, I was ready. <clears throat> now, most thrift shops are rather dingy places. Uh, they're not very pleasant to enter into and they don't look uh, at all pleasing. Tell us something about what your thrift shops look like. Well, you're right about most thrift stores. In fact, I even hesitate to use the word because words make pictures in our minds. And I think that a lot of us, when we hear the word thrift store, we think dirty, dingy. You want to go home and take a shower after you've been to one. <laughs> and um, right from the beginning, I determined that ours was not going to be that way. In fact, um, I've put together several thrift stores now, and, and people say they can tell when I've been involved in putting a thrift store together because the walls are always bright yellow. And I, I uh, make sure that the, that the um, merchandise is well organized, that it's clean, um, that the store looks pleasing and cheery, and has all the parts that any other store would have. We have window decorations and we change all the displays and if there's a holiday we have a you know holiday decoration. We have dressing rooms. We have a real cash register with real bags and um, it's not just little hand-me-down bags and we just do everything that we can to make the people feel very special. I tell our volunteer ladies you know every customer that comes in here I want them to feel like they are the most important person in the whole world. When they walk out of here, I want them to feel very special because I want the love of Christ to come through every one of us to them. Well, obviously it is coming through because the work is succeeding. What are some of the uh, aspects of your work as uh, you look ahead that we should know about? Things you plan to do, goals you have in mind. We have set 1986 as a year to do some housing. Um, housing is a real problem because, well, a typical housing situation for these families is no workable plumbing, no heat, sometimes no doors and windows. It gets cold in Fresno. Sometimes there's just blankets hanging on the doors and the windows. And um, very, very small places. I mean, I found a family living in a chicken coop one time. I mean, it's really a bad deal. And so, we have uh, been involved in some fixing up. Uh, we hope to be involved in more extensive fixing up of existing places, but also in building new homes 
uh, for the people to be able to um, to either rent or buy at no in with no interest loans. And so 1986 is a, is a time when we are really uh, we're busy on a couple of projects in that area right now. We have a man who has donated some land and a home to us, and we hope to build some places on on part of the land. Um, another area we hope to get involved in is job training. And I think that one of the things that is real important is when you're going to do a work like this, because it's important to establish strong relationship with people in order to have the love of Christ really come through and not just be dealing with numbers, um, you need to keep things small. And so when I say job training, I'm not talking about getting a whole bunch of people in a big classroom and hiring a teacher and all that sort of thing. I'm talking about just taking at the beginning maybe two or three, no more than five men, and uh, maybe getting the local uh, mechanic or gardener or someone like that to agree to train them in exchange for their work and just work at it slowly but surely. Maybe have some of the women do um, learn how to do housekeeping with the idea that they can do some of these jobs in those off months when there's no work. And maybe even some of them would want to change their profession. I don't know, but um, job training is one of the areas that we hope to get into in, in the future. Cindy, let's get back to this matter of housing. How do you plan to finance this housing construction as well as the repairs on uh, present dwellings? I don't have a real clear-cut plan for financing at this point. I know that um, when God impresses upon me something that he wants to have happen in the lives of these people, I have a responsibility to move ahead with those plans and while I don't think it's good to be irresponsible concerning finances, still I think there's a certain element of faith. And so I can't really answer your question exactly. I just know that um, the money will be there. I'm not going to expect it to fall out of heaven. I do have a couple of ideas, um, but I'm not sure. Now, I know that our city council has determined that they're going to give us a certain amount of money towards this goal. Uh, I This this will just show you how uh, how God just provides us money sometimes. I was at a board meeting recently and was having breakfast with a man who's on that board who I had not met before and he said to me, you know, after listening to you uh, speak about your project, I am convinced that this is a work of God and this man is very wealthy and his area of expertise is housing. And he said to me, I have uh, promised God that I will give away half of my income every year. And so um, if you would do me the favor of letting me know how I can help financially in your project, I would be very grateful. And so um, I'm sure that we'll contact this man sometime soon. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Well, you know, there's an old saying that the easiest way to eat a uh, whale is one bite at a time. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, you are also associated with John Perkins, who has a remarkable ministry also, beginning in Mississippi and now in Pasadena, California. Uh, tell us more about John Perkins, because there may be some who are not familiar with his work. John Perkins um, was also saved out of the world. He began his ministry in uh, Mississippi called the Voice of Calvary back in the Civil Rights time. In fact, he was almost beaten to death by whites on more than one occasion. Uh, when he was saved, he was in Monrovia, California, and determined that he really needed to go back to his own people uh, to bring the message of salvation to them and to work with the poor in his town, and so that's what he did. And according to him, at that time, uh, for those who were brought up in his hometown, the only thing that you wanted to do was to get out and never come back, and so that was a big step for him. And um, so John has written several books, and in 1979, I first heard about John. Uh, he had, um, I guess he had met the pastor of the church I was going to in Fresno, and so our pastor was talking about him in Bible study, and I took careful note of the books, and, and I went out and read them, and then at another point, uh, he came and spoke at our church. And I really considered John to be my mentor because after reading his books, listening to him talk, and then eventually in 1980 going down 
to see his ministry in Mississippi, um, it really gave a lot of clear definition to what I wanted to accomplish in the lives of the poor. Uh, I knew in general terms what needed to be done, but by seeing his work there, I was able to see more specifically, as well as, you know, when you can see something that's actually going on that someone else has done that's similar to what you want to do, boy, there's just something that happens inside and you say, well, maybe this isn't such a crazy idea after all. I mean, if he can do it, I can do it. And um, so then I began to just go over and over his books to just pick out details. And then every time I was with him, I had another big long list of questions. And um, I have just really patterned this ministry after his because I think he does an excellent job. How about John's work now in Pasadena? <coughs> Excuse me, John moved to um, Pasadena several years ago. He has uh, successfully turned all of the ministries in Mississippi over to um, leaders that he grew up and nurtured there in, the, in those communities. And then he chose a certain area of northwest Pasadena, which is the highest daytime crime rate in California, to move his family and his staff to begin another work with the poor there. And at the same time, he formed um, the John Perkins Foundation for Reconciliation and Development. It's a national board, and um, I have the privilege of sitting on that board. And the purpose of that foundation is to find and develop other ministries throughout the country who uh, are willing to do ministry to the poor in the John Perkins style and to, the, to encourage them with uh, resources as well as funds. Uh, tell us about your visit a while back to his Pasadena work and uh, something of the neighborhood there. The neighborhood, from the time that John moved there until now, which I'm not sure, but if I had to guess, I'd say maybe it's been four years at the most, has changed 180 degrees. When I, one of my early visits down there to a board meeting I went down and um, there, there were just all kinds of drug gangs on opposite sides of the street and they had all these like drug wars and, and uh, there would be people that were shot or stabbed on John's front porch or I mean on his, on his front lawn or in his backyard and uh, it was just amazing kind of thing. One, one time we came out of a board meeting, it was about 10 o'clock at night, we were all standing outside in his front yard. and. There's this giant helicopter that came flying over top of us with this huge light, and it shone down on us. And I said, John, what in the world is that? And he said, well, the crime has gotten so bad here that this is the only thing that the police can do is to operate this helicopter at some ungodly amount of money every day to keep the thing in the air, to shine the light down to see what's going on uh, to, to some way help to protect the people. He said, this is a combat zone. He says, this is war here. And um, earlier in the day, I had, I had come down to talk with John, and uh, I'll never forget the feeling as, as he, he was so proud because he wanted to show me all the things they were doing there in, in the community, and he had bought this house on the corner and fixed it up, and it really looked nice, especially compared to the, all the rest of the houses. And then right next door to him was what he called the drug house. It was one of the gangs that lived there. And next door to that house was another house that he had recently purchased and he was all excited about this and he wanted to show me. Well, this drug gang was sitting out in the front lawn uh, right on the sidewalk. And so John says, come on now, I want to show you this house. <laughs> so he takes me by the arm and you know John's not a very big man. I don't think he could protect me if he had to. And uh, so we go marching right to the middle of these guys and um, I was rather nervous to say the least. And um, so we saw the house and then I felt lucky to get through alive and then on the way back we're walking again and I'm thinking well I did we did it once I guess we can do it again and John looks over and spies a chair of his sitting on their lawn and he says sort of under his breath well that's my chair those guys shouldn't have taken my chair and he walks over and he picks up this chair and I'm thinking John, could you have done that another time besides when I'm with you? I mean, I was really a little nervous. And so he picks up this chair, doesn't say nothing to nobody, and just comes back and we march through the middle of him. Well, needless to say, we made it out alive. But um, then the next thing is he wanted to take me uh, up and around the corner. And in order to go up and around the corner to show me, the next thing he wanted to show me, we had to go through the other drug gang. Who has the fights with this drug gang? And... Um, 
My heart was beating a little fast that day, but we did make it. You were probably the only white woman on the block. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> well, uh, Cindy, there's another thing I'd like to ask you about because I feel that it's an important part of your work. Here you are living in Calaveras County and your work is 150 miles and 130 miles away. Kingsburg and in Fresno and yet you can stay away from it for uh, some length of time. How do you do this? Well there again I learned um, a little lesson from John about three or four years ago I heard John say we should all be in the business of replacing ourselves and so I thought that makes a lot of sense and at that point I began to uh, very carefully build a strong foundation of people who were concerned about the poor in Kingsburg and add them one by one to the board of directors and then um, gradually turn over different aspects of the operation to different people who were willing to do the work so that um, I was basically replacing myself with a system I think that anytime you have an organization, a church, a business, whatever it is, built on a strong central figure, um, that group is uh, basically weak because if that strong central figure is no longer there, then the thing will collapse and that's a real shame because a lot of uh, groups like that do very good work. Uh, but if it's built on a system, then the chances of survival are a lot better and I determined that I uh, did not want this group to just fall by the wayside if for some reason I wasn't there. Now at that time I didn't know I was going to be moving away. I just thought it made good sense. So um, now uh, that we're up here, I had had a chance to spend uh, two good years just really establishing a strong foundation so that now my job is really um, to go down once a month for the board meetings, although I don't even have to do that if I can't make it, and I handle the finances. Uh, I pay all the bills and uh, that sort of thing. So all the bills come to my P.O. box here and I sit in my little office with all my little checkbooks and I mail them out. You have work now both in Fresno and Kingsburg, but both are different in the uh, means of operation. Would you tell us something about the Fresno work, the differences, and uh, give us some insights into uh, their operation? Well. Uh, if you remember, the Kingsburg operation is, I guess, what you would call a parachurch organization in the sense that it works with all the churches but did not really begin, nor is it now, uh, associated with one single church. That started with um, basically with nothing except for my conversion. While the work in Fresno uh, began two years ago, uh, the church I go to there is um, a fairly large church and I think that that this shows that you can accomplish the same thing whether it's through a parachurch organization or through an existing church because uh, at one point I went to the pastor there and I said you know I find it hard to be a part of this body of believers knowing that we're not really doing anything for the poor and I feel like it's my responsibility to let the people here know what their responsibility to the poor is what the church's responsibility to the poor is and um, so at that point we began to establish a couple of thrift stores and uh, a food bank and we've now hired a full-time Hispanic pastor. Um, he's involved in Bible studies and we're doing a real strong youth work in the poor. And so I think it's important whether it's a small town like Kingsburg or whether it's a big town like Fresno to just really zero in and concentrate on a target community area rather than try to accomplish some sort of a task of, of solving the problem of poverty in the whole town. I don't think that Jesus calls us to solve the problem of poverty. Um, I think that he calls us to be concerned with the hearts as well as the bodies of individuals because he loves them and he wants to use us as vehicles of his love in their lives and if that means that we need to be concerned about their physical needs and that's what we need to do. Um, so I think what we're doing in Fresno is we are zeroing in on a target community. 
and we are trying very hard not to be tempted to be involved in other areas of Fresno. That's a very important point. Last year, one of our uh, U.S. senators from another state, a man who would not share our perspective, made the statement that if the uh, Christians of this country really wanted to solve the problem of poverty, it could be done easily. Because he said if every church and synagogue in the United States took care of one family, welfareism would disappear. The federal and state governments would no longer be involved. That puts it in manageable terms. And I think this is what the Lord, as you pointed out, wants us to do. On a personal level, as we see the need to meet it, then it is manageable. And there isn't a church in the country that couldn't make some contribution towards helping one family, and some could take on an entire uh, section of a town. Their resources are so great. I think, as you've pointed out, uh, before we were on this tape, Cindy, many churches find it much simpler to give money for something overseas or at the other end of the country rather than taking responsibility for things in their own neighborhood. This is a real problem. And what you are doing is the Christian alternative, not to send our money away which means saying we are not going to take responsibilities here because we're involved with supplying somebody elsewhere, but meeting the need here in our Lord's name. One of the things I'd like to add also, Cindy, is that I think everyone listening should know that in May we will have a couple of pages in our Chalcedon Report, uh, written by you, giving an account of your work. But this isn't all that we can look forward to. Tell us about your forthcoming book on your ministries. While I am, I don't consider myself to be a writer, I do feel the responsibility of passing on um, this concept of ministry to the poor. I've had a lot of different people in different communities ask me to come and tell them how to put together this type of ministry. And so in an effort to answer some of those questions, I am um, trying to write a book, uh, which I'm about halfway done with, that will answer some of those questions in a very basic way. I hope that the reader will be able to go through the chapters and see how I went about establishing this ministry on a day-to-day, step-by-step basis. I think that uh, one of the problems, one of the reasons why people or churches don't want to get involved in a ministry to the poor is they look at the big picture and they get scared. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that you can clearly see in this book that you don't need to look at the big picture. You just need to look at one step at a time and it is possible to accomplish uh, an excellent work of ministry to the poor. I think you're... uh illustration of looking at the big picture is a good one. When the Lord looks at the world, he doesn't say, I'm going to save uh, the United States or save Mexico or Canada. He looks at us as individuals. And uh, he looks at the little picture. Mm -hmm. And that's how the big picture gets uh, changed. I think it is important for us to know uh, what you're going to say in this book because I believe it is restoring the Christian mission. The early church had no buildings. It was a persecuted, illegal organization. Membership was a a sentence of death if Rome chose to apply that sentence, as it did periodically. And yet the thing that marked the early church was that Whenever they saw a need, they met it. One of the most dramatic aspects of that had to do with abortion. It wasn't very successful in those days, although they practiced it. And the unwanted babies, when they were born, 
In Rome were abandoned under the bridges for the wild dogs to eat, and other cities elsewhere. The Christians went around, picked up those babies, and would go from one member's house to another, parceling out the babies. The mm -hmm. church grew very rapidly that way. <laughs> then they took care not only of their own, because Paul tells us, he that doth not care for his own, especially those of his own household, hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Paul there defines our own, not only those of our own household, but as more. And going to the verses in the Old Testament that deal with the same subject, we know that our own includes our fellow believers, widows and orphans, the needy, the aliens or strangers within our area. So it takes in everybody. Well, we have a duty, and the early church exercised that duty to the point that it was an embarrassment to Rome. Here were these persecuted Christians doing more to care for the pagan, needy, and aged than the Romans themselves were. This was one of the reasons for the rapid growth of Christianity, because people might say, well, maybe a lot of the things they say about those Christians are true. Maybe they are a wild, fanatical group, but, you know, they're very good to some of our people and to some of our old folks when we are not. Now, that carried conviction. Where the unwanted babies were concerned, Rome actually passed a law for a while forbidding Christians from collecting these babies, but that made Rome look all the worse. So they had to repeal the law. So I believe your book is going to be very important in dealing with this basic issue because the church has forgotten an important aspect of its ministry. It's a ministry of teaching, of converting, of healing, and a ministry of caring. So uh, how far along are you in your book? Well, I have finished the first seven chapters, and at this point I'm, I have several directions I could go, and so I'm trying to determine what uh, what direction I need to go now. Um, you know, our, our uh, guiding scripture for our organization has always been Matthew 25, 31 through 46. And uh, when Jesus says that what you do for the least of these, you do for me, you know, we repeat that all the time, we hear it all the time, but um, I really believe that when we help someone who is poor, it's the same as helping Jesus. Yes. And I really see Christ in the face of every single person that we help. And I think that's important to remember that. It's also important to remember what comes at the end of that, like around yes. uh, verse 46, about what's going to happen to those folks who don't take care of the least of these. An important thing to remember about that parable, which most people do not, is that those who come before him are those who feel they are the Lord's. We're the Christians. We're the converted ones. So, all right, Lord, here we are. And our Lord says, I was sick. I was hungry. I was in jail. Where were you? You knew me not. So, what our Lord is saying is what he said in the Sermon on the Mount, by their fruit shall ye know them. What James said when he declared that faith without works is dead, that parable tells us that uh, our faith has to be a living one. And if we uh, came into the church just because we wanted fire and life insurance, <laughs> we're going to get uh, fire, not life. <laughs> and I'm afraid too many people in the church are risking judgment. One of my favorite uh, Christians is General Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. 
He wrote a number of interesting things, notably in Darkest England and the Way Out. It was a book on how to change England by reaching out to the slum dweller, the poor, the needy, by ministering to their need, establishing a job training program, and much, much more. It's sad that nobody paid much attention to that book, including his own organization. But in the course of writing that book, General Booth, I believe it was in that book, perhaps it was in another, General Booth made a very interesting statement. He said, the problem with churches in our day, and it's still true, when they convert somebody, and he joins the church, they mummify him. <laughs> he is now to function in no other way than to sit there mummified in a church pew capable of one motion only, reaching into his wallet <laughs> on the proper occasions to put something in the plate. But apart from that, he is to sit there like a mummy. And so he said, our problem today is that we have too many mummy Christians. I believe that's our problem still. Maybe a theme verse for your book could be, Awake thou that sleepest, and Christ shall give thee light. I trust your book will be very, very important in waking Christians up to their responsibilities. Well, we have only about three or four minutes. Is there something more you'd like to say, Cindy? The only thing that comes to mind is um, that I think that we need to take our lead from Jesus. And it's important to look at the specific things that God told us that we need to be doing with the poor and to do those things in obedience. And obedience is a very important aspect. But another thing that I see when I look at Jesus is the example that he set for us in compassion. Jesus took care of the needs of the poor, not only out of obedience to the Father, but because of the great compassion that he had for the people. And compassion will always show itself in works. And so I think that as long as those two parts are working together, then I think that we can accomplish much in the lives of people. Thank you very much, Cindy. We do appreciate your being with us and your work. We're looking forward to seeing something happen from the article you've written for us and also as a result of your book. Thank you and God bless you.